I want to monopolize on this opportunity to set the record straight, to level the playing field, to also bring through, you know, the difficult process of really soul searching to, to bring people to an understanding so our humanity does shine and it, and it becomes less and less about what we are and more and more about who we are. PowerPoints, power lunches, conference calls, reply to all, endless meetings, constant check-ins, and so much wasted time. Are you sick of the BS? So are we. It's time to take our time back, rework the way we work, and make every call a call to action. This is a podcast for people who want to stop talking and really start connecting. This is After 12. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to After 12, 12 for 12's original podcast series that explores cool companies, brands, messages, and makers, and what compels us to take notice and become fans. We've got another great show for you today. Our guest is an award-winning director, actor, singer, CEO, and artistic director of Atlanta-based Dominion Entertainment Group. He's worked in the theater arts and entertainment for over 30 years, appearing in a variety of stage productions, including Crowns, You're in Town, Queen of the Blues, Higher Ground, Tyler Perry's I've, I Know I've Been Changed, as well as TV and films such as The Cosby Show, Glory, and Showtime at the Apollo. He has also directed many successful theatrical productions, including Dreamgirls, The Amen Corner, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Execution of Justice, Hairspray, Miss Saigon, The Color Purple, and the wildly successful Black Nativity, which has been running in Atlanta every holiday season since the 1990s. Internet, please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Connor to After 12. Rob, how are you, brother? Where's the Where's the soundtrack? I need I need the. I'm going to send you this bio after. <laughs> that was, I was like, who the hell is that? He's amazing. <laughs> I want to meet this guy. I, I got to meet this guy. He's great. What's oh up, my... Adam? How are you, man? I'm great. I am fantastic. I, I mean, it's like we talked the other day and, and we are living in, in such truly intense uncertain as you hear uh and turbulent times i guess first off uh how how's the family how are andrea and ryan doing how are you doing how's your mental health uh you know uh let's start with the family andrea and ryan are fantastic uh ryan is now um a senior in high school at a performing arts school that i, I also one of the other jobs I serve as the fine arts director for their fine arts program there. And my daughter, Ryan, is one of the students who's in the chorus program, and she is in a nationally recognized acapella group that just performed on Facebook for the Facebook graduation 2020. And oh, wow. so she's kind of the big stuff now. You know, she's outpacing her daddy leaps and bounds. But, um, yeah, we're all good uh, trying to... Um, for me, who I'm a very much so an extrovert, um, being hunkered down for month after month, it, I, I'll admit the first month or so, I was a little stir crazy. You know, I was a little like, one, because not knowing really what the potential of this virus could have 
and, and quickly discovering that it had, you know, insurmountable impact on African-Americans more so than non-African-Americans, I became, you know, paranoid in a way because I was like, I have to protect myself from this because people are depending on me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my family's depending on me, my, um, my company's depending on me. And so it got a little nerve wracking at the beginning. And then as, you know, everything settled down and maybe a piece of toilet paper wound up in the grocery store and I could actually stop using leaves, um, I, you know, I've kind of settled into a rhythm now. But, uh, yeah, we're doing great. Thanks for asking. And how is your family? Everybody good? I think, yeah, it's, it's the same. I, you know, it's amazing how, you know, this pandemic is really only precedented by one that happened in 1918 that no one remembers. And that we obviously haven't really learned anything from, um, it was preventable in my opinion. And, um, it could have been mitigated in, in better ways. Uh, yeah. but you know, I think the silver lining for me is it's like, I, a, I get to hang out with my family, um, spend more time with the kids. And I was on the road a lot, traveling, producing, you know, corporate spots and commercials and stuff like that. And so it's you, it takes the banality out of life and, and gives it more more meaning. Um, work is not as much a focus as much as like realizing how much you don't need and how what what things are really important to you. So. And then I, you know, this, this has been kind of a nice silver lining for me too, just being able to connect with old friends like you and, and find out kind of, I don't know, just gauge the, um, the litmus of how people are doing in different industries and what affects not just this pandemic, but, you know, just the state of the nation is, is having. And, and on that yeah. note, I mean, from COVID-19 to kind of the, the myriad incendiary actions of the Trump administration to really the, the anguish and, and protests and response to police violence against the black community and resonant illustrations of racism in America. Like, like how is this affecting you? I mean, as, as a black man, as an artist, as a storyteller, as a, as a human being. I mean, because this is on top of all of this COVID stuff and you using uh, leaves to, to clean yourself. I mean, this is right. This is heavy. This is a it's a layered uh, thing that's going on in our world right now. Um, you know, on top of you know not one not knowing whether if you go touch some a surface and you scratch your nose and. Three days later, you spike a fever. Um, and, but um, in regards to just issues regarding police, police violence against Black people, just the systematic racism that has been around, I think what, what kind of manifested in this time we have is that when the world slowed down, we were actually able to see even more clearer systematic oppression. And, you know, to add insult to injury, we have that joke in the White House that, um, you know, just is fanning the flames of ignorance. And so um, if I'm going to be completely honest, I am frustrated, angry, mad, and a little nervous because... I think we're at 
such a time that there could this could turn into something really, really bad for a lot of people if we don't just stop and take a moment and really take an honest look at what's really going on. You know, it, it is this whole George Floyd murder. Um, not that like we've never had black men murdered by the police. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this particular thing, because the world has come to a stop, we've had time to really marinate and pay attention to this is really some garbage that's going on in our world. And then we, we, we don't have an opportunity to go somewhere and be distracted or, you know, so our world is more focused on what ails us. But I think that um, it is creating a ripple in all communities, the entertainment business, arts communities, post-secondary education, um, funding, you know, it's making everybody just kind of begin to speak their truth about, you know, especially as an African-American who, you know, you get into circles and you get into situations and you see these microaggressions and these biases, these inherent biases, even from the greatest people, you know, they might be the nicest, well-meaning white person in the world, but because of their insecurity or their own unaddressed biases, it always puts you at a disadvantage or to a point where you have to address it And then, you know, as a black person, when you actually call out white people on their stuff, it it creates a whole nother shitstorm for you. uh, If you tend to stay in that environment Mm -hmm. Um, um, and there are these strategic dismantlings and, and shaping of who you are as a person, you know, it's so funny. I was working at a performing arts school in Las Vegas and, um, you know, I, I'm I'm known as a very unapologetic, unapologetic, direct speaking. I say what I say. I don't mean any harm, but I'm going to tell my truth. And I joined the faculty over there, and I was the only black on faculty. And then immediately, I noticed how obliviously racist these people were. You know, the, the principal came up to me the first day he met me, and he goes. Hey, so what productions are you thinking of? You, you know, I really like that Raisin in the Sun. And I was like, now I have a whole entire MFA in theater. The, <laughs> the depth of scope of theatrical material that I've been introduced to, to in the years that I've studied theater is vast. Why Raisin in the Sun, sir? Why? You... You know, and, and yeah, we could do more than August Wilson or Langston Hughes or yeah. What, How about whatever. yeah? Let's do Shakespeare or Moliere or let's do Mamet or, or, or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Even yeah. if it is an African American playwright, if yeah. it's Katori Hall, if it's yeah. Lynn yeah. because you have your privilege has allowed you to pay so little attention to what other people are doing in the world. Yeah. You know, other cultural contributions that has sustained your privilege, yeah, you get intolerant of that after a while. And I think that's what the world is. The world has grown intolerant of the inherent biases. And so now people are just like, okay, I'm tired of this. We're tired of dying. We're tired of, you know, I'm a 50, tomorrow I'll be 56 years old. I'm a 56 year old man who no matter 
where I go, if I drive down the street and I pass a police car, I look in my mirror for at least a mile. For at least a mile, I keep checking to make sure that I'm not being followed. I start playing the plan in my head how I will manage this situation if I have an interaction with a police officer. And that is what really makes me sad is because I don't think white men of my age think like that unless they're criminal. Yeah. And it's not like the human condition right now in the 21st century isn't hard enough. Right. I mean, so the, the unconscious, the simplicit bias that, that people have now rising to the surface. Um, I mean, it's it's almost like an inflection point or it, it seems to be i mean you know last march um i was i was looking in the american theater publication and calundra smith wrote it is no coincidence that the regional theater movement which began in the early 60s um and the civil rights movement were so celestially aligned um you know, she even continued saying that when Barbara Ann Teer founded the National Black Theater in Harlem in 68, yeah. the neighborhood was reeling from the riots that were wreaking havoc across black communities after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, her mission was to create space to celebrate black liberation through art. Do you, do you think, I mean, like the what you do, what your job is to educate kids, to tell stories, to speak your truths. Do you think that we have reached a, a, an inflection point that may actually start to see lasting change? Optimistically, I say yes. If I because I'm a sometimes a realist, I think there's a part of me that doubts that this will have more than a opportunistic impact on our culture. History will teach uh, us nothing. Only because, right, only because I know that the root of why there are, is institutional uh, systematic racism is based on race and power. Um, uh, I believe that, unfortunately, there is a segment of our American society, primarily white males, who have, um, who fear so deeply of losing the things that they exploited from every other culture that created their standing in the world market, that they will go at through any measure. Um, in our Congress, you can look at that in the Senate, yeah. what they're doing, yeah. you know, to, to maintain that. So, um, it's my hope that uh, this levels the playing field. And, and, and to the point that you said about Barbara Antier, uh, the black theater m in the 60s movement was in direct response to the outcry to be heard. Yeah. White people don't make theater to be heard. <laughs> you know, you know, they just don't. They they make theater because it's an idea or a thought or whim or this, and they have the platforms, uh, even with film. You know, um, Black people are relegated to such a narrow subject matter um, 
lane. And uh, the, the weight and pressure on black artists to be great, to create content that is not only received by their own community, but also, you know, recognized by the white community. That's not, con that's, you know, we have all of these white community litmus tests on whether our product is good enough. And I said to somebody that offended some, I said, I've gone to a lot of white theater here in Atlanta and it's terrible. And just because you have a good set and you have a budget doesn't make it better. It's just, yeah. you have a nice set. And so, um, and it's so often like, I think in, inauthentic, unreal, or not really not speaking to, um, uh, something that's, I don't know, that's honest. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, manipulation for monetization. People want to make money off their big Broadway productions or their off Broadway productions. And there's nothing wrong with that. Capitalizing on your creativity is what people should do. Yeah. The challenge is when, for example, I have a, um, a former mentee, I won't call her a former student. She was cast as the first black standby for Anna on Broadway. And um, Disney, I guess, called themselves flipping the script. So the actual Anna who played the Broadway character was a white girl, but her standby was black. And they, they used that as a part of their marketing thing to say, you know, we're really flipping the model. Okay, so as soon as they announced this beautiful, incredibly talented brown black girl from East Point, Georgia, on Broadway, the vitriol of how that just doesn't fit the picture in 2000 and whenever, 17, when she took the gig, you know. This, this was, the, so, this was the, the musical Frozen, is that? Frozen, on Broadway. And so um, I so said all this... There was, a, there was a response, there was lash out, there were... Oh, terrible, oh, terrible. Man. I mean, terrible. It The social media vitriol, the girl, um, she has a video on social media. Her name is Aisha Jackson. And she has a video on social media where she talks about the backlash she got for being selected as a princess in a Disney musical on Broadway. Like, the nasty negative things. And I, and it, 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 that's the part of me that says, will we ever evolve? Are we that um, morally bankrupt that you can't see that someone else deserves something equal to you? Like, you know, and, and given, you know, the, the problem with social media now is any, it, idiot with this IP address can have a voice, you know, and, and so with anonymity and, and right. And nasty. so I don't give so much substance to that as much as I say that it really speaks to the heart of those people, yeah. you know, even with that jackass in the white house, he has unearthed the dander of the, the true feelings of what people really feel about the fact how threatened people are that black people may be educated or black people may be wealthy or black people may be in a meeting and say, I don't like that. I don't appreciate that. You know, 
all of those things still sometimes reside in people like, who are you? Who are you? Yeah. How dare you? Those, those. He's, he's normalized hate. I mean, not just to the yes. black community, but every community except the, the white community, white. The, you know. And it's funny because his constituents are, I mean, I read a Howard Stern article. Howard Stern, I guess, knows Donald Trump really well. And he was saying, well, Howard Stern uh, or Donald Trump wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't stand near his constituents if you paid him. He, he you know, like these, uh, and I, I don't want to get, too political, but I mean, like the fact is, you know, he is, he is marketing his, his vitriol to incite, I think more attention and, and he doesn't care at all about what he's saying. And it's funny, just like, you know, popular culture has created the, the dominance of fandom, you know, cause fans build brands. That's kind of the whole premise of my little marketing shtick. Mm-hmm. Um, so too is, you know, history created by the dominance of, of voice. Uh, Winston Churchill said it, history is written by the victors. Um, meaning that it's, it's often more often than not, not grounded in fact, rather than it's the winner's interpretation of, of, you know, them that, that really prevails. Um, and it's, I think, why truth through art and education and entertainment and performance like you're talking about is more important than ever before. Absolutely. I mean, like, what, I mean, what are you and, and your colleagues and, and fellow artistic directors and fellow storytellers through theater, I mean, what are you guys, have you been, have you been talking to the community and saying, we oh, need... Yes. We need- <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I haven't been on more Zoom calls with influential black artistic people in my life. Um, this, and so if anything from all of this between what's going on in the White House and what's going on in the streets of our country and what's going on that's making us incubate in this, this time is that it is galvanizing. You know, it is galvanizing people. It is making people have conversations with people they've never had conversations with. And or they've been wanting to have conversations with, and it is really expanding. I have a conference after uh, this this interview uh, with the Black artistic directors in the Greater Atlanta area, and they are strategizing about a variety of things. You know, just recently in Atlanta, um, there is a uh, community arts fund which is run. I, I don't know who the white woman who runs it. She's retiring this year. But they were allocated $2 million for COVID relief funding for arts organizations. Yeah. Wow. Great. Right? Atlanta is roughly between 51% Black to 54% Black. So the majority culture in Atlanta is Black. Okay. Great. Successful, educated Black. So... Do you know that not one, they rolled out the funding, phase one, phase two, not one African-American organization received funding in their first rollout. And it wasn't until somebody put them on blast and said, hey. This is bullshit. You didn't fund one black. Yeah. What is happening? They all of a sudden wanted to come to the table and let's have a talk. I really want to hear your thoughts. 
I really think that we should get, I want you to educate me on how I can be a better white person toward your black organization. Come on, stop playing. You know, every time you walk out the door in Atlanta, you see black people. Don't act like you're in Las Vegas and you don't see black people or you're in another place. There are black people everywhere you go. How did you, it did not occur to you that somebody, there were no checks and balances inside your organization, your so-called community funding organization. Hey, we don't have any black arts organizations on our list. Are we doing everything we can do? So that's the, that's like, so yes, I am meeting. We're having conversations. We are planning. My company uh, has a uh, foundation called uh, Dominion Arts Foundation, which is a uh, primarily what it focuses is to create platforms for people of color to create art. So um, hands on kind of practicum, right? Absolutely. Because being in this business for now over 30, maybe 40 years now, uh, working on sets, Working in professional theater, you look around and see, you do not see black and brown people in decision-making roles. You do not see them in stage manager roles or uh, managing director roles, um, board member roles. You do not see them. And if you do see, you see a token. And, And when I mean token, it's not just being black, but sometimes adopting the mainstream ideology with the fear of going counter to that ideology for fear of being ostracized by that organization. So one of the things that I, how I try, how I want to through this foundation is to um, train kids, train young people, high school, college age kids in the fields of technical theater, carpentry, all of these entertainment business related careers and and create internships where they go to these film studios, they go to these uh, radio stations and they literally do an internship there. We're having a fundraising cycle right now, Dominion Arts Foundation, it's on GoFundMe. If you'd like to fund us, we'll take all of your money and give it to the kids. But what what the the point is, is that uh, access is an issue. Training is an issue for, for, for black people. And so we come with gifts, but oftentimes we are left out of opportunity. So we don't get, we don't know the rules of engagement. And so hopefully this, uh, one of the goals of the foundation is to create those opportunities. So they have a platform, they have a portfolio and they develop the skills. So those are a lot of the things that if we can uh, monopolize anything from this COVID funding that may come through, and um, continuing to open the door um, and keeping the damn door open. Yeah. Like stop closing the door. Yeah. You're not fooled. Yeah. You endow plenty of your incompetent. Look at our government right now. Plenty of your incompetent cousins and friends, and you give them really great jobs and they, they inherit the wealth of this institution. And, you know, I think people are like, there's like this non-ceasing call out, like, no, you don't get a pass. No more passes. We're not hugging and saying it's okay. It's not okay. It's just not okay. And we're tired of pacifying you and making you feel good so you can have a good cry. And then, you you know, no, no, this yeah. is what it is. Yeah. I 
I mean, more than ever, it's like if you concede to to uh, apologize or or you know pat on the back and say it's okay, it's okay, Nancy. You know, it's okay, Karen. You're going to be fine. Right. I, I, it's just continuing the system of, like you said, unconscious oppression. People and even conscious oppression. Again, thinking about like just normalizing hate in this country. I mean, one of the big one of the big soapbox issues that I have is it's just like why why can't we just be human beings and 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 realize that like we all have the same needs we all need food and water and shelter we all need to be loved we all need compassion and empathy and why is it so difficult and you know power i think is is one thing people want to have financial superiority is another I think all of these like bullshit ideologies of like, you know, living in some sort of casted society, like you're here and I, I'm above you. And, uh, you know, this is this has made us, um, I think, not just in the last decade or the last century, but for centuries in this system that like, again, we only live 70, 80, 90 years, you know, maybe 100 if we're lucky. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like every every period of history keeps getting recycled because it keeps getting forgotten. And I guess, you know, in light of the fact that, you know, you are a storyteller in this congregational media, right? Where you sit, you experience a live performance of something that's so intimate and yet so powerful. What, what can theaters do? And, and then, you know, right now in terms of, in, in light of all the closures, what are you guys talking about when you get together with your artistic directors on the next call? Like how, how do you tactically get the message to market to, to your audiences? Okay. I'm going to answer it because that's kind of a twofold question. It's, what, <laughs> what do I'll be specific? What do white run theaters do? Like what do the, you know, there was an article in the New York times that said, um, they found that, um, Though 50-something percent of Atlanta's population is black, only 12 percent of the theater that's produced in Atlanta has black subject matter at all, mm. which, you know, really shows you the disparity that, you know. Yeah. Um, so what do they do? They dismantle their system by hiring people in decision-making positions. You set mandates, and I think this actually goes to the funding organizations. Anybody funding these major, major regional theaters and these Lord theaters that are still, you know, have no problem giving millions of dollars to organizations that do not um, philosophically strategize of including black, brown, Latinx, LGBT people in every aspect of their process. They should stop funding those organizations. There needs to be some, some law, some statute that says, unless you are meeting this criteria, we won't fund you. Yeah. Because that will change the minds of these major theaters. They're going to go, oh, Money talks. Yeah, absolutely. Money talks. Yeah. And so I think it starts there. I think that absolutely a lot of these boards or these theater organizations need to be diverse, more diverse and not diverse in color, but diverse in thought 
and diverse in opinion, and that those people on those boards need to have the communities in which these theaters are housed in, you know, because a lot of these theaters in Atlanta are housed in neighborhoods that used to be predominantly black neighborhoods, and then they got gentrified. And, you know, and now, you know, everybody's walking around with baby strollers and jogging, you know, and okay, I got to keep it 100. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I, just, I, I know what you're saying. I smell the Lululemon. <laughs> right, right. What in the 80s, when I first moved to Atlanta, if you said you lived in Inman Park, you was like, oh, you kind of yeah. inner city hood. You yeah. say you live in Inman Park and in, in, in now in Atlanta. Oh, you're paying two grand for like a one bedroom. Yeah. You know, that's that's what it is. But I think structurally um, on the inside, they need to gut it out and systematically painstakingly place people with voices in those decision making and be prepared for the conversation. That nobody's always going to go along with you, yeah. Karen. So. The other thing uh, for us as theater makers, um, of course, you know, everybody's trying to strategize on how to, to utilize the virtual platforms now. You know, I'm still a little analog, so I'm begrudgingly, you know, considering programming in that, that regard. I'm like, come on, please go away, because I love the feeling of real tactile, what yeah. theater does for people when you walk in the building. Mm-hmm. But we got to do what you have to do what you have to do. Uh, we're planning for 2021, you know, summer and on, because 2020 may be a wash for live performances and consider the impact that has on theater as a whole, where your bread and butter is based in, see, one of my companies is a for-profit producing company. So it's not like whether I sell one ticket or a hundred tickets, we all go out and have a drink. We're not going to drink in if I only sell one ticket. You know what I'm saying? So where these regional theater companies that get to spend everybody else's money and they don't really have a fiduciary bottom line like a for-profit company, it's even more difficult for my company, Dominion Entertainment Group, to kind of, okay, let's navigate through this, uh, this holding pattern that we're in. So it's a little daunting, if I'm going to be honest. It's a little frightening. um, But I also am of the belief that, and this too shall pass, and uh, so I've been trying to utilize, you know, there's a million ways to be creative. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been working on some of my writing projects. I've been working on developing some of these nonprofit initiatives and utilize some of this funding that we could use to benefit the community at large. So there's ways that we can still be purposeful. There's ways that we can still make a difference. There's ways that we can still be fulfilled artistically. And it doesn't necessarily have, necessarily have to say my bank account has $4 million in it. Because I think if we're not, if our humanity doesn't heal. It's, yeah. It's, it's all for not. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's all for not. Because, you know, I'm a little, I was a little roundhead boy from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now I'm an old roundhead boy. But, man, uh, uh, who grew up in a football town and was singing and acting. And my father looked at me crazy, like, what the hell is going on with my son? Right. He was really scared. He did not know what to do. Um, But, you know, many years later, 
I am glad that somebody got behind me and said, you can do it too. And I didn't have as many representations of people of color on stage. And so, you know, it was about my imagination that I imagined I would could do this. And I imagined that I can do that. And you have this fearlessness that you accumulate over time that, you know, you don't realize that you're not wanted until they tell you. Which speaks to how we met, you know? Yeah, right. It's funny because I, you know, you posted something on Facebook today about, uh, you know, really the context of where, where we met at the University of Georgia back in the late 90s, um, you know, going for an MFA uh, program uh, at the University of Georgia. And I, um, I think just how much uh, things have changed from that period of time and in, in terms of, um, I, I, I don't know, just again, the kind of the incendiary context of, of the country, of, of the messaging that we hear, of the things that have been normalized, of like the progression of technology for, I mean, you know, you, you talk about, it's gotta have a, you know, the, the change has to be a top down. It's got, you gotta follow the money, go to the boards. And I think about like, you know, just following LinkedIn in the last few weeks, how all of these corporate boards have made the commitment to, um, to you know, to hire, uh, people of color and 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 to open up you know inclusion and diversity programs and to allocate funding and it, again it you know the watershed change comes from critical mass you know when i mean truly when a, the the majority of people come together in any society in any culture and say i've had enough this is this is over we are we are changing um when your blood is boiling that's when i think you know, the greatest change come. It's also, you know, when the greatest renaissance happens, you know, you got to have kind of the black plague and the darkness to have, you know, the, the renaissance, right. You've got to have pestilence to have, um, I don't know, to have a rebirth. I, I, it's like, so I was looking up a quote, August Wilson in his, um, the ground on which I stand speech, the 1996 TCG conference. He said, you know, the black power movement of the sixties was the kiln in which I was fired and has as much to do with the person I am today and the ideas and attitudes that I carry as part of my consciousness and part of, you know, how he told stories. And I think like, you know, for you as a, as a writer, as an entertainer, as a singer, as a director, I mean, and, and as an extrovert, probably this is the best time for you to sit and write some of the shit down because the amount of stories that are just, I mean, I mean, I'm, there's moments that you must like your mouth is agape and incredulous to the fact that you're witnessing history. We are living through history that you just, Correct. It just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Crazier. I, you know, I, I began to reflect on my life. You know, I, I was born in the 60s. And um, even it, it, whoever led our country at the time, though we may not have wanted them to be the president, there was, it was never like this. This is something new. Yeah. This, this oven that's cooking it's almost like the worst perfect storm. You know, it's like the kiln, the kiln that's melting the melting pot. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's destroying the structure. There, there's no raku. It's just the clay is melting over the side of the kiln. 
Correct. Correct. And, you know, to that statement that August Wilson made, he, um, you know, he took a lot of flack, um, but he said, um, you know, we shouldn't be asking white institutions to include us. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but what he was saying is he, he got into a lot of heat about colorblind casting, you know, where instead of looking at people's ethnicities, you know, let's just cast anybody in the part. And his philosophy was, okay, that's great. But for me, there are black stories that need to be told, just like there's Yiddish theater, just like there's mainstream American theater. There are stories that are not being heard because the platform is not being presented. Yeah. So, you know, if that's your thing about doing colorblind casting, great. But the truth of the matter is, as you said, it's really about our stories. And, you know, if black history starts at slavery, we're already in trouble. You know, if, you know, in, 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 I don't know if you know this, in some textbooks in Texas and other states, they're calling African-Americans that came to this country immigrants now. That's what they're writing in the textbooks. Black people immigrated to the United States. So they're like Winston Churchill is right. Whoever's telling the story. And, and so that's why we're saying, um, I want to monopolize on this opportunity to set the record straight, to level the playing field, to also bring through, you know, the difficult process of really soul searching to, to bring people to an understanding so our humanity does shine and it, and it becomes less and less about what we are and more and more about who we are. Because, you know, my belief system is we all are, we all have a soul, we all have a heart, and I, 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 we all are fallible, we all will mess up. But there's a difference between making a mistake and just strategically, diabolically, strategizing to either keep a community down to hurt people and that to me that's just evil and so these evils these skeletons in in america's closet are like and i'm going to say this and this is going to sound crazy thanks to 45 because in his willful ignorance he has scratched the dandruff that was already there. And so now we got to deal with it. We got to deal with it. We got to have conversations like this. We can't keep going along like everything's okay. We're going to see how corrupt some police departments and how corrupt some police officers are. We're going to see the truth that in some of these these riots and some of these uh, rebellions and some of these protests, the people who are starting the fire are instigators from groups that have nothing to do with the protest. So thank goodness for technology because without it, people would not even be able to prove, no, this is what really happened. Just think if there were no cameras, how, you know, you just think about, um, 
the Central Park Five or the Exonerated Five. They didn't have the luxury of cameras to say, no, it wasn't us. Yeah. And systematically, the police department decided we are going to we are going to malign the character in the names of these little boys. These are little boys, little black boys, little white boys don't have to worry about that. That is where your privilege comes in. That is where the things that you don't have to think about that we as black people have to think about every day. It's not a complaint. It's just the truth. Yeah, it is the truth. I doubt if Adam, unless he is doing something illegal, when he's driving down the road, when he passes a car and if he's not speeding, would look in his mirror for, for a mile to find out if the police are following him. Yeah. I will. And I will continue. Because... I'm valuable to somebody and I have to make sure that I'm not in a situation where I don't come home. And that's sad. You know, it's so funny because, you know, there's this idea that white people have coined black people as being dangerous. And I can't imagine, and this is no indictment of a race, but I can't imagine a more dangerous group of people than some of these white groups that are so, they're storming capitals with guns. They're walking around to the grocery store with AR weapons. That is frightening to me. Yeah. And for what? Fear, hate, amosexuality. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre, man. Um, amosexuality. I like that. <laughs> I love you, Robert. It's been so oh, great man. catching up with you. Um, and I look forward to to the next the next step the renaissance the rebirth the righting the wrongs you know i i i say to nora if trump gets reelected i'm leaving the country and i've told my parents that too i i don't want to turn my back on this country but i i don't know where we're going it's not good and i do agree with you that that you know as much as i i want to vilify trump for every villainous thing he's done i feel like um maybe this is the catalyst to finally undo some of these deep-seated wrongs especially especially to the black community so um i'm looking forward to the next day and i'm glad you're in it and tomorrow (laughs) you're gonna be 56 i cannot believe it well, happy birthday, my friend. And um, well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, I'll be in touch. All right. Love you. Love you, man.